ahead and have a seat. Wow. Awesome time of worship. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you, worship team, for that. God is amazing. Amen. You know, we sing that song this morning, Even So Come, with the, the plea that Christ return and take us home. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ somewhere in your heart, that plea, whether weak or strong, it's there. But you know, I have to warn you, he won't come back for you if you do not believe. And that's the topic of our sermon this morning. Perhaps you've heard it said, I won't believe it till I see it myself. You know that expression? It's a line you've probably heard. Perhaps you've even used it yourself. I know I've said it from time to time. When I think of that line, probably the, the, the most significant thing that pops into my mind is, is Thomas, the disciple. Some refer to him as Doubting Thomas. And he did utter those words, didn't he? I will not believe when his friends, the other disciples, told him that Jesus had risen. When Jesus did appear to Thomas, Jesus said to him, put your finger here. Put your hand here. Do not be unbelieving, but believe. Thomas responded, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus said this to him. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know, unbelief can damage. Unbelief can can damage us. When we fail to believe our spouse, that can fracture a marriage. When we fail to believe a friend, it can severely hurt a relationship. And when we fail to believe God, it could damn one for all eternity. Unbelief is very dangerous. Just in general, if you refuse to believe what your eyes are seeing as you're walking down the street, you could end up in the hospital. But you know that I'm not speaking generally. I'm specifically talking about the message that Christ came and spoke to us some 2,000 years ago. You have a choice to believe it or not. But again, let me warn you, to refuse to believe could cost you your soul. We've been going through the book of Mark since January, five months. We're in our sixth month of studying the book of Mark. And last week, we saw Jesus miraculously feed a crowd of 4,000 men plus women and children. And this was the second time he had fed a large crowd. And this crowd, the crowd from last week, was a mixed crowd of Jews and Gentiles. And you may recall that we read at the end of that passage that when they were done, Jesus and the disciples hopped in a boat and took off. They were on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and now in our passage today, he's coming back to the west side. He's coming back to Jewish country, and he makes a stop in this unknown area called Dalmanutha, but he doesn't stay there very long. Let's jump into our text this morning and see what happens. Verse 11 of chapter 8 reads like this. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. 
And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. This morning, I want to talk about unbelief. I want to talk about the dangers of unbelief and sometimes even the the origination of unbelief. And your first point this morning is this. Unbelief can be a result of obstinance. Unbelief can be a result of obstinance. So Jesus and his disciples, they go to Dalmanutha, and the presence of the Pharisees is a clear indicator that, again, they're back on the Israelite side of the sea Soon as he gets there, he's waylaid. He's waylaid by obstinate Pharisees. The text specifically says that they, became, they came to argue with him. Do you see that in the text? They came to argue with him, and that word should signal something. It should signal that what they're doing is they're taking up a previous discussion. The fact that they're asking for a sign, that signals that the confrontation that they had had with Jesus several chapters ago, they've taken that confrontation back up. You might remember in our study in chapter 3, Jesus was accosted by the Pharisees then as well. And they accused him of doing miracles by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. You might remember that. They were accusing him of having satanic power. So this word in our text today for argue strongly suggests they're picking, back that, they're picking back up that accusation and they're seeking for a sign. Now this sign, it's not what we might think. We might think, well, he's done a lot of signs, right? All through the study, he's been doing signs. He's been doing miracles. He's been doing casting out demons. But that's not actually the word that Mark uses when Jesus does those wonders. Mark uses a word such as miracle or wonder, but he hasn't ever called Jesus' miracles signs. So the idea behind the sign, and you can see it in the phrase, sign from heaven, means that what the Pharisees were wanting him to do was some great apocalyptic display that would give some kind of public absolute proof that Yahweh is with Jesus. That's what they wanted. They wanted some sort of public amazing display from the heavens to prove that Jesus was who he said he was. Now, it's important you see here from the text, why are they doing this? They're doing this to test him. And I think there's two things going on there. Excuse me, two things going on there. First of all, this is suggestive of how the Israelites were supposed to test a prophet. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, God gave Moses the test on how to determine if a prophet were genuine or not. I'm going to read this for you. It's kind of lengthy, but it's Deuteronomy 18, 20, and 22. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So that's the test, the idea behind what they were putting to Jesus. Okay, if he is really a prophet, if he is really from the Lord... Let's put it to the Deuteronomy 18 test. On the one hand, that's what they're trying to do, but on the other hand, they've already accused him of working miracles in the power of Satan. So you see, they're not coming at this test from a genuine heart that wants to know. They're coming at this, already accusing him. They're wanting to prove him to be a fraud. Their motive is, let's go out there, let's put the Deuteronomy 18 test to him and prove him not to be who he says he is. 
But Jesus, however, he's not going to play their games. Look at verse 12. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now, in the English, we don't get the full weight of what he's saying here. First, we see that Jesus sighs deeply in his spirit. And it's interesting because just a couple of passages ago, Jesus sighed again when he was healing the deaf and the mute man. Do you remember that? It said that he sighed in his spirit when he was healing the deaf and the mute man, but it's a slightly different word. That word for sigh was signaling a communication between the Lord and his father. But here, this sigh, it's the only time this word is used in the New Testament, and it's meant to communicate a deep grief. He is deeply grieved. And you know, if you think about it, it makes sense. Jesus is facing more unbelief. And he is grieved and even possibly irritated. You think of Jesus being irritated. Does he have the right to be irritated? Yes, he does. He has been facing unbelief. He faces crowds who just want his miracles. He faces disciples who don't get it. And he faces Pharisees who just want to prove he's a fraud. And he sighs. And then he makes this statement. Why does this generation seek a sign? Now, that's accurate. That's accurate to the text. That's an accurate translation. That's what he's saying. And when we see why does this generation, we should think back to the Exodus. Think back to the generation that wandered the wilderness. Moses taught a song that spoke of that generation. He taught it to the new generation in Deuteronomy 32. And part of that song, verse 5, goes like this. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked, a crooked and twisted generation. That was the generation that wandered in the wilderness, that died off. The wilderness generation did not believe in Yahweh. Not fully. Though they were witnesses to the plagues, they were witnesses to the wonders, they were witnesses even to the very glory of God, and they missed it. And just like that generation, in Mark 8, the Pharisees have been witnesses to his teaching, witnesses to his miracles, witnesses to his wonders, and yet they too respond in obstinate unbelief. Jesus is saying, this generation is like that generation. They want a sign, even after everything that has happened, they want a sign. And Jesus outright refuses. And then he says this, Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now there's where we lose something in the English translation. That's not exactly what he says. He says something more to this effect. He says, if this generation is given a sign, dot, dot, dot. That's what he says. And in the Hebrew culture, this is a flat-out refusal that should carry the idea of self-condemnation. Let me explain. This phraseology was used in the Old Testament. For example, in 2 Kings, the king of Israel at the time, Jehoram, he hears a horrifying story of two women who had agreed to consume one another's children. 
shows you the state that Israel was in at that time. And Jehoram, believing that the prophet Elisha was to blame for this, he tears his clothes and he says this, may God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders this day. In other words, may I be accursed, may I die, may I be punished if I do not carry out the death of Elisha. It was, it, was a, it was a saying with a self-condemnation attached to it. And again, another example, in 2 Samuel 19, David is returning to Jerusalem. And he says to a man named Amasa, he says, Are you not bone, my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in the place of Joab. Again, he is making a huge, solemn promise to do something or be condemned for not doing it. And that's the verbal formula that Jesus is using here in Mark 8. He utters just a piece of it. He says, if this generation is given a sign, dot, 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 may I be accursed. May I die. That's the implication of what Jesus is saying. In other words, he's saying so strongly, I'm not going to give you a sign. I won't have any part of that. And then Jesus punctuates his refusal by pulling a U-turn. Look at verse 30, 13. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. And it, they, just, they just hit the sea. Just like in the passage last week, they're out of there. If you think about it, it's almost comical. Jesus shows up. The Pharisees demand a sign. And Jesus says, nope, and leaves. Now, why? Why was Jesus so adamant against doing a sign? Wouldn't that prove who he was? Wouldn't that prove that he was the Messiah? Wouldn't it shock and awe them if he performed some great heavenly marvel? The Pharisees then would be forced to admit that he was the Messiah. If he did this great, amazing sign in the heavens, they would be forced to admit that he was the Messiah. And therein lies the point. That was the reason he refused to give a sign. See, wanting a sign negates faith. God wants us to respond to him in faith, not from absolute proof. God wants us to respond to him in faith. He does not want to have to prove his existence or his authority to us. Now, there is incredible evidence to support the reliability of the Bible. There is. There is incredible evidence to support the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And you've heard me refer to it, and I'll continue to refer to it. But there is no absolute proof of Christianity. Did you know that? There is no absolute 100% proof of Christianity. But that's true of any worldview. There is no absolute proof of any worldview. You know, we take in data, we research, we come to conclusions. That's what an atheist does. There's no absolute proof for atheism. That's what an agnostic does. There's no absolute proof for agnosticism. 
And that's what Christians do. And before you freak out, let me assure you again, there is staggering evidence to support what we believe. Staggering evidence. Evidence that outweighs other religious beliefs. But again, God doesn't give us overwhelming 100% absolute proof because he wants us to respond in faith. He wants us to respond to his word. And honestly, that should be all the evidence that we need. When Jesus told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 18, the rich man was burning in Hades. And he sees Abraham and Lazarus far off. They're unreachable. And he says to Abraham, the rich man says this, he says, send Lazarus to warn my brothers of this place. And Abraham responds, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them receive, let them hear them. But the rich man objects and he insists, if they will, if they will see someone come back from the dead, then they'll believe. And then Abraham says this, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will, be there, neither will they be convinced if someone comes back from the dead. The word is enough. His word is enough. The commentator, William Lane, he writes on Mark chapter 8, and he says this, the call for a sign is a denial of the summons to radical faith, which is integral to the gospel. Jesus rejects the way of signs as fundamentally wrong because it precluded personal decision in response to the word of revelation. That's why he denied them a sign. He had given them enough evidence to point to who he was, and they refused to believe. Do you want a sign? Look to the word. This book is a miracle. It is the very word of God. Now that's a sign. That's a wonder. God has etched his own words into the fabric of fallen time and space for the sole purpose of granting us an opportunity to believe in the gospel. Even after we rebelled. Now that's marvelous. That's gracious. That's incredible. And that's our God. He wants you to come to him by faith. So don't obstinately demand a sign from God for his existence or to authenticate his authority. To ask for a sign from God concerning the authentication of his authority reduces the necessity for faith. And that's like a spouse saying to their mate, I love you, I trust you, but then hiring a private investigator to keep watch and make sure they're faithful. That damages the relationship. There's no trust. There's no real trust or real love. And you see, this is what God wants from us. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to have faith based upon the revelation of his word. So with all that being said, let me implore you. If you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus, don't wait. Don't look for some absolute proof for the existence of God. You won't find it. Instead, respond to his word. Trust that he is who he says he is, and the work of his death and resurrection is sufficient for the forgiveness of your sins. Come to him today. Today is your day.
come to him by faith. And if you have more questions on that, would you please come see me after the service? Now, we as Christians, we're not obstinate in the sense that we're rejecting Christ or we wouldn't be Christians. But we can be obstinate in how Jesus is leading us to grow in our faith. I have to be honest with you, in my own life, I have been obstinate toward the Lord. In my younger days, I was very immature as a Christian and as a person. And the sad thing is, I knew it, but I didn't care. I liked who I was, and I didn't want to change. See, it wasn't that I didn't believe in God. I believed in God, yes, but I didn't want to believe in how he wanted to change me. I didn't want to trust him. I wanted to live my life my way. See, that in there was unbelief and unacceptance of who God was calling me to be. Now, praise God, he humbled me, and he changed me, and he continues to change me because I need it. But let me say, I do wish that I had submitted to him earlier in my life. An obstinate refusal to believe or accept what God is doing in your life will only result in damaging your own spiritual growth. Do you remember Samson? Book of Judges, chapters 13 through 16, Samson obstinately refused to follow the path God had laid out for him. And you want to know the crazy thing? God used him anyway. Samson could have avoided much of the pain in his life if he'd only submitted to God. And see, that's the danger of unbelief. It can result from, can result from obstinance which leads to unnecessary pain. Obstinance. The second danger we see from our text is this. Unbelief can be infectious. Unbelief can be infectious. Verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So they leave the shores of Dalmanutha and the scene shifts to the boat. Now they're in the boat with Jesus and the disciples are distracted by not having bread. Or actually some commentators suggest that maybe Mark's reference to them only having one loaf was really a metaphor for having Jesus in the boat. I could go either way on that. Whether that's the case, we're not sure. But needless to say, the disciples are distracted. They're distracted in this passage. It seems like somebody forgot to grab a basket of leftovers after the feeding of the 4,000, which honestly wasn't all that surprising because you may remember at the end of that text, it gives us the impression they just up and left. Now, Jesus here, I can't help but think that he's possibly contemplating what's just happened with the Pharisees. He's mulling that over. So he turns to his disciples and he takes this and tries to make it into a teaching moment. He says, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, let's just look at the statement. What's he saying? He uses this term leaven. And we might think of the instant yeast we have in our freezers back at home. But it's not the same thing. Leaven was a little bit of the previous week's lump of dough. And what they would do is they would take that previous week, they would take that leaven, and they would add juices to it for fermentation, and then they would add that into the new lump of dough, and that natural process would make the dough rise. Think of sourdough. Same idea there. If they left the leaven out, the bread would be flat, 
which they did sometimes, <clears throat> excuse me, which they did sometimes, and they used that often ceremoniously. You've probably come across passages in the Old Testament that refers to unleavened bread. Now, Jesus uses the word leaven here as an image. He uses it as a metaphor for unbelief. The word leaven was often used this way. See, it wasn't that leaven was bad. That's not what we're getting at. But it was used as a word picture for unbelief. Even in secular circles, they would use that word leaven to talk about corruption or talk about unbelief. Why? Because just like leaven, unbelief spreads. Unbelief spreads. Jesus points out two sources where unbelief comes from. He says the Pharisees and Herod. Now, these two distinctions are polar opposites. The Pharisees, you know, they were the devout religious leaders of the Jews. Herod was a crazy, power-seeking Gentile. What do these two polar opposites have in common? Obstinate unbelief. The Pharisees demand a sign to authenticate Jesus' authority. And what's interesting is that Herod does the same thing. Now, that event is not recorded in the book of Mark, but in Luke 23, 8, Herod wants Jesus to perform a sign. The Pharisees and Herod both obstinately refuse to believe Jesus was who he claimed. And they also felt threatened by his influence. And as a result, the two opposing parties actually had something in common. They both refused to believe Jesus was the Messiah. And interestingly enough, both parties played a part in Jesus' crucifixion. Unbelief can be infectious. It can spread like a disease. You know, this, this process of using leaven or a bit of the old dough to cause the new dough to rise was kind of a tricky process. If the old dough was not preserved correctly, it could grow harmful bacteria, and then when it was used, would contaminate the new dough and poison the whole loaf of bread. Leaven spreads, and that's why Jesus uses it here as a metaphor for unbelief, because unbelief can spread. Jesus' warning here is this, don't be tainted by unbelief. He's not talking about bread, you know that. He's talking about the obstinate disbelief of the Pharisees. He's warning the disciples, don't be infected by the leaven of the Pharisees. Don't let their unbelief influence you. Now, is that a problem in our day? You better believe it. I was reading an article from the Gospel Coalition, and it talked about the one-time strong church of Scotland the article writes, in 1909, the doctrine was so solid that few, if any, churches split over it. Later, the article explains, these were also the days when pastors and theologians began suggesting a new way to view the Bible. And this new way included such ideas as, well, is the Bible 100% trustworthy? Did the creation story actually happen? There were some who suggested Noah's flood probably didn't really happen, and neither did Jonah, and on and on it went questioning the validity of the Bible, and that kind of thinking made its way into the Scottish church and severely damaged the flock. There's a statistic that says in 60 years, that's not really a long time, in 60 years, the Church of Scotland plummeted from 1.3 million to 300,000 members. Why? Unbelief. 
unbelief crept in, slowly but corruptingly. In our day, churches are under pressure to deny what the Bible says about creation, parenting, sexuality, gender issues, and most importantly, the core belief that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. Everyday Christians, and you probably have felt this, are under the pressure in the workplace and in their neighborhoods. They are under pressure to ignore their Christian beliefs and instead embrace tolerance or whatever the current cultural push is. We are bombarded with temptations to compromise what we believe. We have, and if we have cracks in our theology, then they're going to spread. Cracks may even seem harmless at first. Compromising this belief over here might seem harmless at first, but it can cause our faith to crumble. Let me use a different analogy. Don't let snakes in your garden. Don't let snakes in your garden. Guard yourself against the lies of our society. You know, sometimes at home, when we're watching a movie and some false religious belief is introduced in the film, sometimes I'll stop and we'll have a family discussion. And the kids love that. Maybe not so much. But you know, there's a purpose to it. I want to point out how the enemy can creep in, how he can dress up a false idea and make it look so good. And before we realize it, we're believing his lies. What's the alternative? How do we combat the lies of the enemy? How do we combat this unbelief that so quickly and easily spreads? We combat the lies, quite simply, with the truth. Combat the lies with the truth. Saturate yourselves in the Bible. Be in his word. Read solid Christian books. Listen to solid Christian podcasts. Listen to sermons. Steep yourselves in the truth to prevent cracks in your faith. Keep the snakes out of the garden. Jesus makes this statement, watch out for the leaven. And the disciples, well, they don't get it. Verse 16. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Your last point, unbelief is dangerous. Unbelief comes from a place of distractedness. Unbelief can be a result of distractedness. That's your point. The disciples are talking about bread. You noticed throughout the last several passages, bread has been a common theme with the Syrophoenician woman, with the feeding of the 4,000, with this section here. The disciples are focusing on bread. Their focus is on this world. It's on their provision. It's on their temporal. 
And that word for discussing there, it's to think or to reason carefully, to consider. It even can mean to argue. So they took Jesus' statement to mean he was rebuking them for not having bread or possibly just one loaf of bread. And it caused a discussion that could have even turned into an argument. Maybe it went something like this. He's upset because we forgot to bring any bread. Well, that wasn't my fault. Thomas was supposed to bring the bread. Hey, that wasn't my fault. It was supposed to be Philip's responsibility. And on and on it goes, like an argument does. And then finally, Jesus steps in with a series of questions. Look at verse 17. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? Jesus just lays it out. Why are you talking about bread? Jesus was trying to use what had happened on the shore as a teaching moment, and they missed it. They're stuck in the literal. They're stuck in the mundane things of life. He's not talking about bread. He asks, do you not yet perceive or understand? It almost sounds like he's exasperated, which he very well could be at this point. He's dealt with the unbelief on the shore with the Pharisees, and now he's dealing with unbelief here in his own disciples. He asks this question, are your hearts hardened? And that should take us back to chapter 6. When they did not understand after the first feeding, the feeding of the 5,000. But not only that, we've seen that phrase, hearts hardened, come up several times. So let's just define it. Let's get our minds around it. What does it mean? What is a hard-heartedness? Here's a simple definition. It's a persistent refusal to believe in God and his purposes. It's a persistent refusal to believe in God and his purposes purposes. The disciples are hard-hearted. They are dull of understanding. They haven't grasped what's going on, or they haven't grasped who they've been with. Jesus then says something that recalls Old Testament scripture. He says, having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear. Those very ideas are recorded in Jeremiah 5.21. When Jeremiah is pronouncing against Israel, he says this, Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Jesus actually says these same ideas just a few chapters ago in Mark chapter 4. And then he's quoting Isaiah, but he was talking to the disciples about why he spoke to the crowd in parables, and he says, That they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand. Now, in that passage, we were contrasting the crowd with the disciples. The disciples were on the inside. They were hearing the truth from Jesus. The crowds, too, were also hearing it but not understanding. So we get here back to Mark 8, and what Jesus is effectively saying is, you're dangerously close to being on the outside. You see but don't perceive. You hear but don't understand. You are dangerously close to being on the outside. And yet, and yet, they're still on the inside because Jesus is still content and loving enough to teach them. And that's the difference between those on the outside and those on the inside. Jesus wouldn't even bother with the Pharisees, but he's patient and instructive even when they don't get it. And then he lays it out even clearer, verse 19. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? 
Now, in the crazy imagination of Ryan Jackson, I visualize the disciples at this point looking kind of sheepish and mumbling, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Seven. Do you not yet understand? I think there's a couple things going on here. First, Jesus is reminding them of his ability to multiply food. They have a bread maker in their presence. It doesn't matter if they have bread or not. They've got Jesus. He can make bread from anything, and he doesn't even need one loaf. He could dish out food as well. Why are you worried about food when I'm here? You remember last week, I shared with you that there were some logical reasons why the disciples had forgotten about the first feeding. Do you remember that? The feeding of the 5,000, and then last week, the feeding of the 4,000. The disciples acted like they didn't even remember it. And I shared with you that it's possible that a lot of time had passed between those two feedings. And I shared with you that, you know, even mature believers, we tend to forget God's provision. And I told you we really shouldn't be hard on the disciples, and I still think we shouldn't be hard on them. But come on. The feeding of the 4,000 probably happened mere hours ago, maybe a day at the most. And they've already forgotten. Why? They're distracted. I told you there were two things going on here. One, Jesus was reminding them of his ability to multiply food. But two, they've got Jesus. And that's the point. That's the point behind all the miracles. Jesus, Jehovah Jireh, is with them in the flesh. See, they're so worried about bread when the Alpha and the Omega is in their midst. Jesus is present, and that's been the whole point of all the miracles that he's done. Who needs bread when Jesus is with us? See, the disciples have become so dull with the miracles that they fail to ask the question, what do these miracles mean? They mean the Messiah has come, the one we truly need, the bread of life. God is with us. And unbelief can be a result from being distracted. It's not an outright obstinate, I refuse to believe. But it's when you're so focused on everyday things that you don't stop to consider the implication of the very presence of God. That your life is not the mundane things that we face. Consider instead that you are privileged to be his child. And in the everyday mundane things of life, he is with you. Consider the very presence of God. Jesus may not be with us here physically, standing next to us like he was with the disciples, but make no mistake, he is just as present with you today, 2,000 years later. And yet we too get just as distracted. We get so distracted with life, we miss him. We get so distracted with life, we fail to understand what he's doing in our life. And sometimes we get so distracted that we're tempted to believe he's not even here. And I get it. Life is full. Life is hard. Life is disappointing. 
Life is fraught with constant needs. I get it. And I also understand the irony of what I'm saying right now. I'm telling you not to be distracted, and that's rich coming from a guy with ADD. But seriously, the troubles of this life pull our attention away from God. And when that happens, fear, worry, anxiety, depression, anger, suffering, all those things fill our hearts when God is not central. And those things are a result of unbelief. The disciples are so caught up with the mundane things of life that they miss Jesus' point, and we do the same. How do we fight this? How do we keep from being distracted by going back to his most precious promise? What is the most precious promise that Jesus left us with? I say it all the time. It's Matthew 28. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Cling to that promise. Cling to that even in the midst of the things of life that constantly bombard you, that pull at your attention. Cling to God is with me. Now, before we move on, I want to make a distinction here, a distinction between unbelief and doubt. I don't want anyone in this room to think that their doubt is unbelief. And let me explain what I'm saying. If you're struggling with doubt, if you're wrestling with the truths of God, if you're struggling with doubting God's character because of where you are in your life, something has happened and you're struggling to fully believe what God is saying here, You're not alone. All Christians struggle with doubt at times. Let me read a quote from Tim Keller. It goes like this. A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. See, what I'm saying is strong faith can result after one has wrestled with their doubts. Don't be fearful that your doubt is unbelief. Let your doubts lead you to look deeper. Ask probing questions. Seek the Lord. You know, if you come to the Lord honestly with your doubts, he'll lead you to answers. But if you obstinately refuse to believe or are too distracted with life to look and see the presence of God, then you're in for a world of hurt. Unbelief is very dangerous. It can result from obstinance, it is infectious, and it can result from distractedness. Thomas the disciple refused to believe till he actually saw the risen Savior. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know when the Pharisees wanted a sign? Jesus refused. And as I told you, he uttered the start of a verbal formula that could have gone something like this. 
If a sign is given to this generation, may I be accursed. But he didn't finish that statement. Or did he? What Jesus did not say with his words, he performed an action. Jesus was cursed. Jesus was crushed by God when he was nailed to that cross. The sign that the Pharisees were looking for hung on the cross, and they were too obstinate to see it. The true bread of life that the disciples needed gave his life for them, and they were too distracted to notice. See, the biggest danger of unbelief is that it misses the very purpose for why Jesus came. He came to remove your sin and mine. He came to defeat death for all time. And if we're obstinate, we'll miss it. If we're distracted, we'll miss it. If we fall into that pit of unbelief, we'll miss out on the incredible blessings he wants to give both us here in this life and in the life to come. What is Jesus calling for? He's calling not for unbelief, but for faith. A faith that is submissive, a faith that is pure, and a faith that is attentive. Don't miss it, church. Don't be unbelieving, but believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that you patiently loved and taught your disciples. Thank you that you constantly gave them chances to see the truth, and thank you that you do the same with us. Help us, Lord, to believe or help our unbelief. Just like the Pharisees, we get obstinate about what you're doing in our lives. And just like the disciples, we get distracted from you, from your very presence in our lives. And Lord, forgive us. Grow us. Cause our eyes to see and our ears to hear so that we don't miss who you are and what you're doing. We love you, Jesus, and we praise you and we ask these things in the name of Jesus.